I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Arc of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. This week, we shine the spotlight on James Weldon Johnson, a man many know as the author of Lift Every Voice and Sing. But Johnson was also a lawyer. And in this episode, we take a look at a horrific incident that happened in 1925 and how he used that case to lay the foundation for what would become the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. The creation is from my volume, God's Trombone. Read at Columbia University, December 24th, 1935. James Weldon Johnson. And God stepped out on space and looked around and said, I'm lonely. Then God sat down on the side of a hill where he could think. By a deep, wide river, he sat down. With his head in his hands, God thought and thought. To he thought, I'll make me a man. This great God kneels down in the dust. Boiling over a lump of clay, till he shaped it in his own image. Then into it he breathed the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Amen. Amen. At the beginning of the 20th century, America was taking its first steps onto the world stage, preparing to be a leader in the push for democracy. At the same time, the nation was letting itself be pulled away from its own promise of liberty and justice for all. The country was settling into the time of the Industrial Revolution and post-Reconstruction. For some, the 1900s may have been the best of times, but for many others, it was a reminder of the worst of times. There were race riots, there were brutal massacres, and there were waves of lynching. Most of the southern states had changed their constitutions to officially deprive black citizens from the right to vote, and too many government officials seemed too willing to just look the other way. The nation desperately needed something, something that could speak to its culture, its conscience, its character, and its creed in a way that would give it a rebirth and a revival. It needed a legal spark a legal renaissance. And during the first two and a half decades, James Weldon Johnson gave it that spark. James Weldon Johnson was indeed a renaissance man. And so by the time he joined the staff of the NAACP in New York in 1916, he had already piled up an impressive list of accomplishments. After he graduated from Atlanta University in 1894, he went back to Jacksonville, Florida, where he was born in 1871, to establish the first black high school, and he became its principal. In 1898, he became the first black person admitted to the practice of law in Florida. He first went to New York with his brother, J. Rosamond Johnson, where they became well-known composers and producers of operas and musical plays. In the early 1900s, he was a diplomat serving in the consular corps in Venezuela and Nicaragua. 
Johnson truly had achieved enough for three lifetimes, but his work with the NAACP would change the fate of a people and a nation for generations to come. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People had only been in existence for seven years when Johnson joined them in 1916. Their offices were just two small rooms up on Fifth Avenue. It had a simple mission, advocating for the common equality of black Americans under the fundamental law of the United States. In 1916, the board of directors created a new position called field secretary, and that December, James Weldon Johnson wasted no time in his new job. I threw myself wholeheartedly into this work. My first step was to organize in the South. In 1916, there were 68 branches in northern and western cities, but there were only three branches in any southern cities. Two in Louisiana, New Orleans and Shreveport, and another in Key West, Florida. It was my idea that the South could furnish numbers and resources to make the association a power. But I was also convinced that it would be necessary to awaken black America. Awaken black America to a sense of his rights, regardless of what might be done for black America. The ultimate and vital part of the work would have to be done by black America. By the end of 1919, the NAACP would have 310 branches, and 131 of them were in the South. Johnson's plan is what eventually made the organization into a truly national one. But long before joining the NAACP, Johnson had seen up close and personal the type of race prejudice that the civil rights group would later take on in courtrooms. Ironically, of all the places Johnson would encounter that prejudice, it would be in a courtroom. One of my early ambitions was to study law. So in the fall of 1896, I made arrangements to get started. I didn't go to law school. I used the method most approved in the Old South. I read law in a lawyer's office. The man who made it possible for me was a young lawyer named Thomas Ledwith. Well, after 18 months of study, Ledwith thought I ought to try the examination for admission. I wasn't as sure as he was. But my application was filed, and exam day was set. I was to be examined before Judge R. M. McCall, and my exam was sort of a spectacle. The main courtroom was full, and there were more people there than I had ever seen at any time before. Probably half of all the lawyers in Jacksonville were there. Well, the judge had appointed three lawyers to question me. E. J. Lingle... Major W.B. Young and Duncan Fletcher. They quizzed me for two hours, and when it was done, a lawyer sitting in the gallery near the committee leaned over and asked, Well, what are you going to do about it? Mr. Fletcher said, He's passed a good examination. We've got to admit him. Then Major Young said, And I quote him precisely because the words made a sizzling impact on my brain. Well, I can't forget he's a nigger, and I'll be damned if I stay here to see him admitted. That was not the first time Johnson had heard something like that in a courtroom. When he was a student teacher in Hampton, Georgia, after his first year at Atlanta University, he and a childhood friend went to the local courthouse to hear the trial of a black man accused of stealing a hog. 
In his closing arguments, the prosecutor said, Gentlemen of the jury, I don't have to tell you this nigger is guilty. You know it as well as I do. All you've got to do is bring back a verdict of guilty. And it was happening in other Southern courtrooms, too. In a Mississippi case in 1911, a prosecutor summed up his presentation to the jury, saying, This bad nigger killed a good nigger. The dead nigger was a white man's nigger, and you see these bad niggers like to kill that kind. The only way you can break up this pistol totaling among these kind of niggers is have a necktie party. And so that was the legal atmosphere when Johnson was taking his examination to become a lawyer. That was how the system dealt with black men accused of crimes and how some in that system felt about black men attempting to become their legal defenders. But despite Major Young's outburst, Mr. Fletcher stood before the bench and made the motion for my admission. Judge McCall swore me in as a counselor, attorney at law, and solicitor in the courts of the state of Florida, and in March 1898 I became the first black lawyer to be licensed in Florida. After passing what Ledwith called the damnedest examination I ever heard of. He would continue to practice law in Florida, mainly in Jacksonville, until 1899. Both he and his brother were musically inclined, and when Rosamond returned to Jacksonville in the spring of 1897 after studying music and working in Boston, the two brothers began to compose music together. They moved to New York in the summer of 1899 to try their fate and were very successful. By the next year, their success led to one of the most stirring compositions in American musical history. A group of young men decided on February 12th to hold a celebration in honor of Lincoln's birthday, and I had been asked to give an address, but I wanted to do something else also. The central idea I had was more than just a speech. I talked it over with my brother, and we planned instead to write a song to be sung by a chorus of 500 schoolchildren. I got the first line, and then I worked along grinding out the next five. When near the end of the first stanza, there came to me the lines Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. The spirit of the poem had taken hold of me. I finished the stanza and turned it over to Rosamond. As I worked through the opening and the middle lines of the last stanza, the words God of our weary years, God of our silent tears came to me, and I could not hold back my tears, and I made no effort to do so. I was struck by the sense of serene joy, the kind that makes artistic creation the most complete of all human experiences. In 
1919, the NAACP began calling it the Negro National Anthem. That same year, its author became the head of the organization, the first black person to lead the group. That was right after the Red Summer, where race riots broke out all across the country, in Chicago, in Omaha, in Longview, Texas, in Washington, D.C., and in Phillips County, Arkansas. The riots in Phillips County, Arkansas were the most brutal of all, and the most memorable, because out of them came a legal case where the association won an important constitutional victory. The price of cotton rose in early 1919, but black farmers were not realizing any greater profits than when market prices were at their lowest. They decided to organize to see what legal steps could be taken to force a statement of accounts and a fair settlement from the landlords where they were sharecroppers. They called their group the Progressive Farmers and Household Union. On the evening of September 30th, the union held a meeting at a church to raise money to hire a team of white lawyers out of Little Rock. Because they had encountered earlier opposition just to their wanting to organize, the union leaders placed armed guards around the church to prevent disruption. Without warning, the church was fired upon. And in the ensuing standoff, a deputy sheriff was killed and the church was burned to the ground. A reign of terror followed. Between 200 and 300 Negroes were hunted down in the fields and the swamps, and many were shot down like animals. The ones who were not killed were arrested and indicted on charges of conspiracy to massacre white landowners, land swindling, murder, and the silly offense of night riding. 122 Negroes were put on trial. After a 45-minute trial and a five-minute deliberation by the jury, the first 12 farmers were sentenced to death by electrocution. 67 others received life sentences. The association took up the defense of these men, and we brought in two lawyers for the case, George Murphy, a former Confederate officer and Arkansas Attorney General, and Scipio Africanus Jones, the leading black lawyer in Arkansas. Scipio had already won court cases challenging the all-white grand juries and the inequities in the convict lease system. After five years, we won that case before the Supreme Court, and the court said the men did not have a fair trial according to the due process of law because the whole thing had been dominated by a mob. By January of 1925, every one of those men had been set free. Later that year, the Ocean Suite case started up in Detroit. It was the height of the jazz age and Ocean Suite was a successful Negro physician. He had moved to Detroit, Michigan in 1921 after graduating from Howard University Medical School in Washington, D.C. His wife Gladys was born in Pittsburgh, but she grew up in Detroit, just a few miles north of a house at 2905 Garland Avenue. 
Dr. Sweet was a proud man, for he came from in Florida, black men were permanently boys, never worthy of respect. Dr. Sweet was no boy. He was a professional man, better educated, wealthier, and more accomplished than many of the whites he encountered. He had built a successful practice down in Black Bottom. That was the name of the city's largest colored ghetto. And he had earned the respect of his colleagues at Dunbar Memorial, the name of the colored hospital. And so buying a house that was in a white neighborhood was to be just one more grand accomplishment. Shortly after 10 o'clock on the morning of September 8, 1925, Dr. Ocean Sweet and his wife Gladys made their way down Garland Avenue to their new home with its inviting front porch, shaded by a sloping roof. His brothers Otis and Henry, along with his college roommate John Latting and Norris Murray, a hired handyman, followed behind them in a moving truck. Gladys loved the house from the first moment she saw the polished oak trim that framed the long living room, the built-in bookcases, the chandelier, the decorative tiles surrounding the fireplace and the alcove where she envisioned putting the piano. But by nightfall, the brick steel bungalow would be surrounded by whites who lived on Garland Avenue and onlookers from nearby. There were a hundred, maybe two, milling about, standing and talking, slowly sauntering around. That's how it starts, thought Dr. Sweet, quiet and peaceful. That was always the way a nightmare began. But nothing happened. The Sweets spent the first night in their new home nervous, but without incident. The next night, the mob returned. And like the night before, there were a hundred, maybe two, again milling about, standing and talking, slowly sauntering around. Suddenly, something slammed against the roof of the house. Somebody started throwing rocks and stones. A second story window was shattered. Then the roar of gunshots from an upstairs bedroom. A roar from the crowd outside and one of the onlookers named Leon Brenner, a foreman at the Continental Motors plant who lived a dozen or so houses away from the suites lay dead in the street and just a little after 9 o'clock p.m., Dr. Sweet, his wife Gladys, and nine others were all arrested for murder. The first time I heard about this case came one afternoon while playing golf. I had taken it up to get outside exercise. I became devoted to the sport, but I never did get really good at it. I was playing at a club in New Jersey, and a messenger ran up to me and told me I was wanted for a long-distance telephone call. The call was from Detroit, and I spoke with our branch officers there for a half hour. The next day, Friday, September 11th, on the back pages of the New York World was an article about the incident. I knew this case could be the basis to achieve an idea I had for a few years, an idea to establish a permanent defense fund to be used for any case that would involve the constitutional rights of the Negro. 
The idea had come to me three years earlier. A young man named Charles Garland had inherited one million dollars from his father back in 21. At first, the 23-year-old did not even want to accept the inheritance. He said he could not accept money from a system which starves thousands while hundreds are stuffed and that leaves a sick woman helpless and offers its services to a healthy man. So he planned to just refuse it. But one of his friends, Roger Baldwin, who was the chair of the newly formed American Civil Liberties Union, pushed him in another direction. Garland used his inheritance to create the American Fund for Public Service. I had become a member of the ACLU's National Committee, and over the next few years we did receive several grants from the fund. But there was more that could be done. We had already had a couple of successes in the Supreme Court. We had a National Legal Committee. We just needed a plan. A real plan. A permanent plan. Johnson did do more. And Johnson did have a plan. In early 1925, just as the Arkansas cases were winding up, he sketched out a proposal for what he called a NAACP Legal Defense Fund. The proposal was simple enough in scope. Through its National Legal Committee and with the approval of its board of directors, the association would identify instances where the constitutional and legal rights of the Negro citizens of the United States were being ignored or denied. Our fund would be used to retain the best lawyers all across the country to defend the cases we identified and to be a permanent and established component of the operations of the NAACP, it needed the appropriate funding. $50,000. The directors of the Garland Fund were scheduled to meet the last week of October, just about the time when the sweet case was going to commence. I put the finishing touches on the proposal, submitted it to Garland's American Fund for Public Service for seed money, to get the defense fund started, and I asked for $25,000 to match what the NAACP would raise itself. On Thursday, October 8th, along with Walter White and Arthur Spinyarn, Johnson went to see Clarence Darrow to get him to take on the sweet case. Arthur Garfield Hayes had agreed to be on the defense team because, as he said, freedom of residence was at stake. With Hayes on board, Darrow jumped at the opportunity. With the sweet case, Darrow could have his chance to make Americans confront the sheer stupidity of white supremacy. It took another week to settle the details. Darrow agreed to take the case for $5,000, which was one-tenth of his usual fee to handle a murder case. Hayes charged three. The following Thursday, October 15th, Johnson sent word to the nation's newspapers that the famous Clarence Darrow and Arthur Hayes had been retained to handle the defense of Ocean Suite. The timing was perfect. The trial was set to begin in just about two weeks, around the same time the Garland Fund would be considering the proposal. And the association's Washington, D.C. case before the Supreme Court dealing with restrictive covenants was about to be set for a hearing. All that was left was the right public campaign. 
one that spoke to the interest of black and white Americans alike. We did not hold a press conference to announce Clarence Darrow's joining the defense team. The story was bigger than that. So we decided to just have a press release. I started by quickly recounting that the shooting was a justified act of self-defense, and I showed how the act on Garland Avenue was connected to what our restrictive covenant cases in the Supreme Court was all about. The simple and easily understood issue of a family to live in peace wherever their hearts and resources could find a place to call home. I made it clear that if in Detroit the Negro is not upheld in the right to defend his home, then no decent Negro home anywhere in the United States will be safe. It was just as important that it be understood this practice of segregation must be faced in a common sense way. It is absurd and un-American. If you begin by segregating members of one race, you may easily come to the point where segregation is made into a matter of creed as well as race. Of course, you cannot stand for it. It would undermine the very foundation of American citizenship. It worked like a charm. Newspapers all across the country began to repeat Johnson's message, and one even said the law in America is presumably broad enough to cover the Negro as well as the white man. And on October 30th, just before the Ocean Sweet trial began, word came that the board of directors of the Garland Fund had voted to support James Weldon Johnson's proposal to create a permanent legal defense fund. In a press release, Johnson called the new legal defense fund the munitions of war for such a fight in behalf of justice for the Negro as has not been fought since the Civil War. Ocean Sweet was ultimately exonerated. The first effort resulted in a mistrial, but on Thursday, May 13, 1926, a jury made up of 12 white men found 10 black men and one black woman not guilty. They must have been persuaded by Clarence Darrow's eloquent reminder that this case was about a darkness so deep that it made men blind. This case is all about prejudice. What do you know about prejudice, gentlemen? Prejudices have burned men at the stake, broken them on the rack, torn every joint apart, destroyed people by the millions. Men have done this on account of some terrible prejudice, which even now is reaching out to undermine this republic of ours and to destroy the freedom that has been the most cherished part of our institutions. If the race that we belong to, gentlemen, owes anything to any human being or to any power in this universe, they owe it to these black men. Or perhaps they were moved by the final instruction given to them by Judge Frank Murphy. Now, gentlemen of the jury, I consider it my duty to especially caution you and warn you against prejudice. You will remember, gentlemen, that under the Constitution of this country, all men are created equal before the law. 
It may be possible, human as we are. We cannot create perfect justice, but the ideal is plain. And it is our duty to strive and reach for it as sincerely as it is in our power to do so. When Johnson heard Clarence Darrell's words, he was overcome with emotion. When he finished, for a moment the court went silent. No one was moving, no one was talking as he turned to take his seat. Then the crowd began to surge around him, and I pushed my way through to offer my thanks. He placed his hands on my shoulders. His eyes were shining and wet. I tried to stammer out a few words, but just broke down and wept, and I was not ashamed of my tears. Thurgood Marshall would join the NAACP in 1934, leading its legal efforts. In 1940, the Legal Defense and Educational Fund was formally incorporated with Marshall serving as its director counsel. The Inc. Fund, as it was affectionately called, would go on to handle hundreds of cases attacking every aspect of Jim Crow laws wherever they were found, in voting rights, interstate travel, housing and criminal matters, and of course, with its most famous case, Brown v. Board of Education. James Weldon Johnson did not live long enough to see the ripened fruit of the sweet seeds he planted. He was killed in 1938 when his automobile was struck by a train. But he was the driving force behind the creation of what led to the monumental success of the NAACP, spurred on by one simple thought that guided him through every step of his remarkable life. This country can actually have no more democracy than it accords and guarantees to the humblest and weakest citizen. This is a question which can neither be avoided or postponed. James Weldon Johnson, a hidden legal figure that changed America. On the next Hidden Legal Figures. Most people remember that on April 4th, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Some remember that he was there to come to the aid of striking sanitation workers. But very few remember the legal efforts associated with that moment. One of the lawyers who represented Dr. King remembers it well. He had been in Memphis a number of times making speeches, trying to uh, generate uh, help. And as a matter of fact, he had actually, uh, I think, been in Memphis maybe a little bit before the sanitation strike started, uh, trying to, his group trying to recruit people for what they called the Poor People's March, which was gonna happen in the summer of 1968 in Washington, D.C. We knew the injunction had been issued by the court, but he hadn't been served with it, and we hadn't seen it. And so uh, Dr. King had that injunction, and the city had filed a complaint, uh, allegations of why it uh, was necessary. And so once we met with Dr. King, some of us had to go and prepare an answer in papers to say, 
why the injunction shouldn't be granted. I'm Mike Cody, and I hope you'll join me next time on Hidden Legal Figures. That and more on the next episode entitled A View from the Mountaintop. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in next week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.